Welcome to the podcast of Vertical Life Church. We hope and pray these messages encourage and challenge you to find your glorious purpose in Christ Jesus. For more information, visit us on the web at www.vlchurch.tv. Well, good morning. Are you awake yet? I mean, God is so good. I just sense his presence. I've been sensing his presence since I walked in this place, uh, even before we had everything set up, I just am excited for what God is doing, and I just share the sentiment with those that gave testimony about our, our training for our prophetic ministry team yesterday. I just, I just even more confirmed in my spirit, God is up to something, and uh, and when He's up to something, it's always something good. Amen. Amen. Well, it is. Uh, we are in um, this next week of our, our series, Jesus. We have one more week, which will culminate on Easter Sunday. So today, like Scott said, is Palm Sunday. And, uh, and so it is a significant day in the Easter week. Uh, but uh, So we have one week left until our Easter service. So if you uh, would stop by, there's a little table in the back of the auditorium. Also, it should be at the Connection Center, some invites, invitations to our Easter service. If you could grab some of those and pass those out. If you're on Facebook... We also have an, a live event for our Easter service on Facebook. If you could uh, mark that you're going, if you haven't done that already, and then also share that event to your page to help us get the word out. We want to see this place filled up on Easter Sunday. And it's one of the easiest days to do it because it's one of the Be Kind to God Sundays. You have Easter and Christmas. So if you're going to invite anybody to church, this is the week to do it. And, uh, and it's important because we're going to be sharing the gospel, what Jesus did for us on the cross, give people an opportunity to enter a relationship with Christ, which will be monumental and life-changing for them. And, uh, and that's why we live, right? We live to share the gospel, to introduce people to Jesus. And so it's going to be a really important week. So please, please, please get the word out. And, uh, and I know that God will bless you for that. So we are in a week, seri- uh, week six of our series, Jesus. And over the course of this series, as we've been looking at his impact in the world, we have discovered many things about why Jesus continues to be the most influential person in all of human history. And today is, is just like every other week, we're covering a specific topic, though, that's near and dear to my heart. We are talking about Jesus, our muse. Jesus, our Muse. What is a muse? Well, in Greek mythology, it referred to nine goddesses who were the daughters of Zeus and Nemozim, who presided over the arts and the sciences. But in the literal sense, a muse is a personified uh, entity that acts as a force or a source for inspiration for a creative artist or a creative person. So people will use that term, uh, oh, the such and such is my muse, because it inspires me to create. And so we are looking at Jesus being our muse. Now, coming from a family involved in the arts, both of my parents were music teachers. Uh, my dad and mom both taught at the college level, and for most of my life, my, my mom was a orchestra teacher for the public school system where I was growing up. Um, I am married to an incredibly gifted woman. Can I get an amen? Uh, man, I, I will tell you, I like to just sit and listen to her practice at home because the presence of the Lord is there during rehearsal when she's doing all her, you know. 
little act, things that she does. But I just, I just love that, and it's such inspiring. All four of my kids are now involved in the music arts. I, my daughter London's learning piano. Jocelyn's playing the drums. Both my boys are learning guitar. And so music has always been an important thing. Art has been an important thing. My dad is a painter. He's a professional painter. And, and the like. So I have grown up with the arts being a regular thing in my life. Now, when I was younger, I had dreams of being a professional musician. But I could never write secular music. It means like non-Christian music. I, I've tried and I tried and tried. I'm like, if I'm going to make it big, yeah, I will be world famous. I got to learn how to write songs. So I started writing songs when I was younger, wrote a lot of songs. And uh, was a part of several different groups. And, but when I would write music, I would try to write secular music and I couldn't do it. I could never write love songs. Because I had never really been in love, so I didn't know what I was talking about. I didn't get it, I guess. You know, it just didn't work out. I couldn't write heavy metal or heavy rock music because I wasn't a rebel, so I couldn't relate there. And I couldn't write country music because I didn't drive a truck, wear boots, and my dog didn't randomly die one day. So there were just like things stacked against me. So the only thing I could write was Christian music, worship music. Why? Because Jesus has also been a huge part of my life. And so I was able to write from what I knew. So every group, every band I was a part of had Jesus at the center, worship at the center. And today Jesus continues to make an impact in our music industry because the Christian music industry is a billion-dollar industry today. It's incredible. What happened, what really began in like the 40s, 50s, and 60s, uh, in, in there, the, this transition in culture gave birth to Christian music, contemporary Christian music, and today it's a billion-dollar industry. Matter of fact, Chris Tomlin, who is a contemporary uh, Christian artist, he's a worship leader, he started off as a worship leader, now he writes all sorts of songs, like the song How Great Is Our God. Many of you have probably heard that. He is on record today the most sung artist of all time, secular or non-secular, Christian or non-Christian. A Christian artist, his songs are sung by more people around the world any given time than any artist you can think of. That's incredible. And that's what God is doing in the music industry today. But it's not just what's happening today that Jesus is having an impact. This is a phenomenon that goes way back hundreds and hundreds of years. Jesus, according to the Encyclopedia Britannica.com, Jesus has evoked a rich artistic tradition in Western culture, one that has spread to other cultures with the global expansion of Christianity in the 19th and 20th centuries. A stunning array of representations of Jesus characterizes the history of European art from the Middle Ages onward. Indeed, religious art with a particular focus on Jesus may be said to have dominated European artistic endeavors and aspirations. Although that dominance was traditionally regarded as an indication of the piety or religious nature of previous centuries, contemporary scholars prefer a different explanation. The Christian church was by far the largest patron of the arts, and the building of decoration of churches throughout Christianized Europe called for the engagement of massive number of artists. So what they're citing is that not only was religion important to people, which influenced art, but the church in its endeavor to build churches and, and Catholic cathedrals all over everywhere employed so many artists that it became the dominant influence 
in all of the creative arts in, in uh, times past. So if you think of certain incredible works of history, think of the Sistine Chapel in Rome. It was painted by Michelangelo, the, the figure of God and Adam and, and these different um, uh, images that we have. Jesus has had a huge and profound influence on the visual arts that even continues in film today. Um, there are more films made about Jesus than any other historical figure in history. More films, more depictions. And one of my favorites, I talk about it all the time. I know it gets annoying, but I'm going to plug it anyway, because if you haven't watched it, you're a loser, uh, is The Chosen. It's free. It's completely free. There's no reason why you shouldn't watch The Chosen. So I'm plugging it. Download the app, watch it. It's great. Uh, but uh, it, it's one of the best depictions I've ever seen. So like this continues today. More and more things are coming out inspired by the life of Christ. Uh, John Bordslap, he's an author and composer. He wrote a blog post entitled Classical Music in Christianity. All of contemporary music has its roots in historical music. All of it. It doesn't matter what genre you listen to, even rap, it all goes back to something before it in history. And, it, and we can trace it all the way back to the classical eras where Mozart and all these guys were, were writing music. He writes this in his blog post. With church music, Bach's cantatas, passions, Mozart's masses and the like, the connection is clear and does not warrant any exploration. And I will say right away that Christian religion is much more than a religious nomination organization, or worldview defined by circumscribed axiomas and orthodoxies. It has played a prominent role in shaping Western civilization and has a great extent the cradle of modern society and its values and its art. The Christian faith, by and large, has been a driving force in all of the arts. He continues by saying, the classical tradition in Western music was born with the early liturgical music of the Christian church. The Gregorian chant in the great cathedrals of the past, or plain song, um, or some of these. He also quotes a, another article, A History of Music and Musical Style by Homer Ulrich and Paul Pisk, which states, few products of artistic activity have had more influence upon the course of Western civilization than the liturgical music of the early Christian church. It served as a source of cultural stability during the chaotic centuries that saw the death of one great historical epic in the birth of another. This uh, liturgical music began bending Roman patricians and northern barbarians alike to its mystical purposes. It continued for over a thousand years to illuminate the sacred texts and carry their meanings deep into the hearts of all who heard them. All of that to say this. Though music has shifted and changed, the arts have shifted and changed over the last few hundred years, the inception and foundation of music and art in the modern era has its roots in the past, namely in the Christian faith, in the church. Jesus has historically been the central theme and focus for the arts for the last 2,000 years. And this is where I ask, well, why is that? Why is it? 
The Bible gives us a glimpse as to maybe why mankind and the world over for two millennia have embraced Jesus as its muse. A famous playwright and uh, author named Hans Christian Andersen is famous for saying this about music. He says, where words fail, music speaks. Where words fail, music speaks. Another author, L.R. Nost, writes this. She says, music speaks the language of the soul, penetrating into the past and resonating deep into the future, unearthing the pain and tenderness and sorrow and joy, reminding us of our infinite fragility and extraordinary strength, reigniting our dreams and passions once again to remind us of who we were meant to be. Music is a powerful agent that wields a profound influence over our lives. The music you listen to has a way of moving you emotionally, spiritually. It can, it can change your day from being really down in the dumps to being up on cloud nine. I don't know if you ever have been going through something really difficult. Uh, you're struggling. You feel like it's the worst time of your life, and you turn on Christian radio, and like that next song that comes on seems to be reading your mail. I don't know if you ever had that phenomenon. It's like there's a, a lyric in there that seems to speak directly to what you're going through at the time. Music has a powerful way of connecting with us. The thing about music is that music is not the invention of man. Music was God's idea. Music was God's idea. My wife quoted this earlier when she was encouraging us. In Zephaniah 3.17, it says that God, the Father, in the kingdom of God to come, when the eternal state comes and we're with God forever and ever, it says he rejoices over his children with songs of joy. That God himself, can you, can you think about that? Imagine heaven for a minute. You're in heaven. Well, what, what will be heaven? And here we see the glory of God, and we're singing to him, and God's looking at us, and he's singing over us. Like, like I don't understand that, because I think, like, God's on the throne. He's, you know, got his arms crossed, and, you know, he's all stoic and stuff, and, you know, everyone's singing, and he's like, yes, yes, come on, you know. You know like, it's like that's how it should be, right? He's the only one worthy of worship. But it says he will rejoice over us. The God of heaven is going to glory over his people with singing. That's incredible. But not only does God sing, in the book of Revelation, we see the angels before his throne never cease to sing night and day, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That, that they've been, even before the earth was created, he created the heavenly host, the angels in glory, and they've never stopped saying the same thing. Like, why, why could they do that? Why can these angels sing the same words, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty? The word holy means set apart. It means there's nothing like it. It's because they get to see God, and every second of every day, if there's days in heaven, they get to see a new reality, a new aspect of God's greatness, which reaffirms that truth. There is no one like our God. And what comes out? The worship of the Lord. Song, creativity. It's a way to express in way words maybe fail. Music was God's idea. It's the language of emotion. It has a rhythm to it and not just a beat. Like I love the drums. I like when the drums got a great beat. You know when uh, music comes on, you see kids when they're, when they're real little and the music has a great beat? 
You don't got to teach a child to dance. They do it on their own, right? It's like, and they get the, you know, they get the little squat thing going on, you know. It's so awesome. But it's like in us. That there's something that God has put in us to love music, be affected by music and worship. And it's not just about the beat. And it's not just about the flow. There's a, there's a personality to music. But music has a way to connect your heart and move you spiritually. And this is a revelation for how we were created. You see, as human beings, we were made to worship. We're made to worship. Our souls were made to express. Our hearts were designed to express and communicate in a way that is more than what speech can accomplish, can initiate. Paul says in the book of Romans that the Holy Spirit in us will intercede in prayer for us with groanings that cannot be understood in words. Music, song, singing, the sound that we produce, there is a way that could, to communicate in a way that words cannot articulate. And even the Holy Spirit will use sound, will use groanings that, that can't be translated into words to intercede on our behalf. There's, there's a power behind music and behind the worship that we give to the Lord. Matter of fact, Paul commands us in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19, he says, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs among yourselves and making music to the Lord in your where? In your hearts. So here he's, he's admonishing, he's encouraging the church, and he's saying, stay true to your faith, and as you're doing that, sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, but make music to the Lord in your heart. You see, it's God's heart for us that we build each other up and we build ourselves up through singing. Singing connects us deeply in the spirit. And it helps us process through and release and receive emotions that we might not other, otherwise be able to access. And, and, and I know that some people are like, well, I just don't like to sing. But you are designed to sing. You're created to worship. And in John chapter 4, Jesus said that there will be true worshipers who arise who worship in spirit and in truth. So this is God's idea that you would be a worshiper, that you would worship, that you would sing, and you wouldn't just sing with your head, you'd also sing with your heart, your spirit. There's a difference between singing with your head and your heart. You can be listening to a song and be singing along, but it doesn't affect you emotionally. One of the shows my wife and I used to watch all the time was The Voice. Anybody like watching The Voice? Yeah, it's, I, we don't watch it much anymore, but we used to watch it almost religiously, every, every new episode. And one of the things I loved most about it was the behind the scenes when the coaches were coaching the artists. Because normally, all we see is the performance. And we're wowed. We're like, wow, man, look at their gift, their talent. But do you know why their performances make such an impact? It's because they're communicating not just with the words, the message of the song, they are communicating with their emotion. They're connecting. And that's what the coaches tell them all the time. you got to get to a place where your heart can connect with the words so that what comes out isn't just nice sound, but it's the emotion. It's, it's the story that the song is beginning to tell. And so what Jesus is saying about worshipers, he's like, when you sing, don't just regurgitate information with your mind. 
But get down to a place deep down that your heart connects with what you're doing so that what is produced is true worship. It's the whole story. It's heart and mind together in concert. And this is the bold, authentic thing that God wants you to encourage and build up the church, which is why I think the enemy tries so hard to keep people from worship. Because he knows what shifts in us when God gets our heart. It's what shifts. So creativity is the Father's work. It's his idea. And not just because he's a creator, right? God is creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So creativity is the Father's work, not just because he's creator, but because we're made in his image, and we're naturally predisposed or pre preconditioned to create, just like our heavenly Father. Uh, I, I love this concept found in Isaiah 42, verse 5. It says, this is what the Lord says, the creator. Somebody say creator. Just so we know who we're talking about. He's the creator of the heavens, who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath. Somebody say breath. Somebody who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk in it. So think about this. God created everything in six days. We read that in Genesis chapter 1. Everything he created. But he's still stretching out the heavens. He's still using what he created to be creative. He's still, he's making room for what he created in the heavens, in the galaxies. He's also spreading out the earth. Why? To make room for his people. To make room for his creation. And he's bringing people to life. He's giving them breath. Now, that word breath has an interesting connotation to it, and this ties into how we're created, that we're created to worship, and why worship is so impactful in our lives. God created us, and he gave us breath. That word breath doesn't simply mean the air going into your lungs, though it can be translated that way. This word breath in the ancient languages is synonymous with the soul, the human mind, or your consciousness, your life force. So if you think about when God created mankind, he breathed into man the breath of life. This brought us to life. It brought about human consciousness. According to Stanford.edu, in an article about consciousness, it said only after the 17th century did consciousness start to be used with a distinct meaning referring to a psychological phenomenon or phenomenal dimension of the mind rather than its moral dimension. So we often get these two concepts confused. We have consciousness and we have the conscience. Consciousness is your life force, your ability to be alive, to be aware of your surroundings. Your conscience is your moral agent that lets you determine between right and wrong. So there's two different faculties that we have. The consciousness is your state of being alive. Your conscience, what God has also given you, is your ability to process morality or make moral judgments. So God has given us all the knowledge of right and wrong, the ability to discern between right and wrong. That's our conscience. But without a consciousness, a conscience is meaningless. Without having life, the ability to discern between right and wrong has no benefit to your life. Because if you're not awake, what good is knowing the difference between right and wrong, right? 
So here what the prophet Isaiah is telling us is that God didn't just animate the body with life. He also animated the soul that does give us the ability to know the difference between right and wrong, the mind, will, and emotions like we talked about last week. But it's more than that. It's more than just your moral faculty. It's your ability to experience life, to breathe into you the breath of life, to become self-aware. And what I love about this understanding that what the scientists are telling us is that we all have consciousness, but unlike any other part of your body, they can't figure out where it comes from. There's no tangible place in your body that they can point to that says, okay, that's your consciousness. That's your seat of consciousness. Your brain affects how you think, but we know your consciousness actually tells your brain what to do. So what's in control of your brain is your consciousness, and it's immaterial, like a spirit. And what is also spirit? Well, God is spirit. God is immaterial. So when the spiritual part of us has a new thought, has a new idea, what are we doing? We are creating. And when the spiritual part of us speaks, we're taking immaterial things and bringing them into physical reality. Just like God in Genesis chapter 1 says, let there be light, and there was light. So when we create, when we do new things, we are acting just like our Heavenly Father who took things that were immaterial and brought them into the physical world. It, it's, it's fascinating how we can look at the scientific world and see what God created and just what God is doing in this moment. And that's why it's important, like we talk about life and death being in the power of the tongue, because it's not just the words we're saying, it's where the words are coming from. They're coming from an agent made in the likeness of God, who has the ability to take what is immaterial and bring it into the physical world and have an impact in reality. It's mind-boggling. It's mind-bending. So God created life. He created us spirit. He birthed within us a soul that can manifest immaterial things into physical reality. It's a powerful thing. He animates our life that way. And embedded within humanity, what God created in the soul, is the desire to worship, to glorify the Lord. We were designed to use our consciousness, our spiritual nature, to reveal God's glory throughout all his creation. This is how he designed us. We are made to worship him in this way. And also, as we worship him, to be completely fulfilled by him. In Psalm 34, verse 8, again, it says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, the joys of those who take refuge in him. Psalm 63 verse 5 says, you satisfy me. Somebody say satisfy. You satisfy me more than the richest feast, and I will praise you with songs of joy. God has designed us not just to create, not just to worship, but to be satisfied completely in our creativity, in our worship. There is a satisfaction in God Almighty that the world cannot pr provide. There's unspeakable joy in His presence. There's unfailing love and tender mercy. And beloved, we were created to enjoy this reality as we enjoy the Lord's presence. He rejoices over us and enjoys us. 
in perfect fellowship and relationship. And I wish we could just stop right there. I wish that was the whole story. But unfortunately, there's also a Genesis chapter 3 where sin comes in and messes the whole thing up. Sin has entered the reality, and now we all wrestle with the sin nature. We're still designed for worship. God still intends us to be fully satisfied in Him as we worship Him and we create and we do these many things. We're hardwired for this. But what sin does is it bends us to worship, but it takes us off the path of worshiping the Lord to worship other things. To worship things that don't truly fulfill, but give the illusion of fulfillment, but only lead to pain and suffering. You see, the first Ten Commandments, God says, you shall have no other gods before me. That word before also means in addition to. That there's only one God, and only one God gets to be God, but yet the sin nature, we're bent to go astray and make gods for ourselves. And we do it in many ways. We will whittle a little figurine out of a tree and say, oh, it's a god. Or like Paul says in the New Testament, some of us have made a god out of our stomach and we worship our appetite. We let our appetites determine our livelihood or what we desire. We make gods out of all sorts of things. We, we look at celebrities and singers and actors, and what do we call them? We call them idols. We even have a show called American Idol. We make gods out of all sorts of things. Why do we do it? It's because we're created for worship. We're created to worship God and God alone, but the sin leads us another way. Psalm 40, verse 4, the psalmist says, Oh, the joys, somebody say the joys. The joys of those who trust in the Lord who have no confidence in the proud or those who worship idols. We are made for worship. We're made to be fulfilled in God over and over again. The psalmist adjures the people to hope and trust in the Lord, worship him and him alone, because he recognizes this bent, this sway in us to worship other gods and other things. In the last chapter of the book of Psalms, God's worship manual, Psalm 150, verse 6 he ties it back in to Isaiah. He says, let everything that breathes, somebody say breathes, let everything that breathes sing praises to the Lord. Oh, praise the Lord. God breathed into us the breath of life. He gave us a conscious mind so we could worship him and be completely fulfilled. Sin leads us the other way, pulls our heart away, but yet here he's encouraging us, let everything that has a conscious mind, let everything that's alive, let everything that can think, that can imitate God with their life, let them praise the Lord. Let them praise the Lord. Now the word for breathe here in the ancient Hebrew language is neshama. It's translated as breath, spirit, the soul, or your consciousness. Just as in Genesis chapter 2, he breathes into us the breath of life. We became a living soul. I want you to track with me for just a second. I'm going a long way around, but this is so profound. When I, when I was introduced to this concept, it radically transformed my understanding of how we were created. But again, he breathed into us the breath of life. We received consciousness. Psalm 104 verse 29 
says, Lord, when you hide your face, they are dismayed. Talking about his creation. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. So when we were created, God breathed into us the breath of life. And here he's saying, when you take away their breath, they die. The word breathe here is the word ruah. It's also translated as wind, the spirit, or the soul, or consciousness. What I love about this depiction of us being alive, it's connected to breathing that's being used as a metaphor for us not only being physically but also spiritually alive, having a consciousness. Because according to uh, lung.ca, every human being estimates throughout a day that you breathe 22,000 times in a given day. You breathe at least 22,000 times in a given day. So if we were to hold our breath, we could breathe in. If you were to hold your breath for too long, what happens? You could die. Because your oxygen turns into carbon dioxide and your body can only handle that for so long. If you were to breathe out and then hold your breath and not breathe in again, what happens? You die. You have to breathe to stay conscious. You have to breathe to stay alive. And there is a deep mystery here in the simple act of breathing and how we're worshiping God. Just by doing what God has created us to do, it is an act of worship. Because we're operating, number one, according to his plan and design, the way we're designed to live. But two, the scripture says, let everything that has breath, that has life, Praise the Lord. One of the ways God is glorified, the one of the ways God is worshipped, is by praising the name of the Lord. The ancient Hebrews, they, they had a reverence for the name of God. Anytime you read the Old Testament, you see the word Lord in all caps. This is the divine name. It's the most holy name. As a matter of fact, the, the ancient Jews, they wouldn't even say the name for fear of misusing the name. One of the Ten Commandments is, Thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain. So they're like, we won't even say the name. And so they use a phrase called Hashem, which simply is translated as the name. So they understood the name of God to be so holy. Jesus, even in the Lord's Prayer, says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. That means keep your name, may your name be kept holy, unlike anything else. So, here we have this understanding that one way we worship God is just being who he's created to be. But two, it's in glorifying the name of the Lord. In Psalm 8, verse 9, the psalmist writes, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is what? How majestic is your name in all the earth. Psalm 99, verse 3 says, Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. There's this understanding about the name of God. In Exodus chapter 33, as Moses is kind of griping to God, he's like, God, I know you're leading us, but if we don't know that you're going with us, we don't want to go. We just want to stay right where we are. We want to be wherever you are. And so God says, okay, I'll go and be with you. And so Moses responds to the Lord in verse 18. He says, well, then show me your glorious presence. And then the Lord replied, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Wouldn't you want to be there in this moment? All my goodness, not some of it, all of it. I want to be there for that moment. That mountaintop experience, just count me in, I'm there. 
I'll even buy a first-class plane ticket. I'll be right there, front row. He says, I'll make all my goodness pass before you, and I will call out my name. And then he says what the name is, Yahweh, before you. For I will show mercy to anyone I choose. I'll show compassion to anyone I choose. The goodness of God is attached to the name of God. The goodness of God is synonymous with his name. It's the divine name, which means I exist, or he exists, or I am what I am. It represents all that he is. It's the goodness of God. Now, again, I was blown away by this concept, and I, I just want you to go with me on this journey for just a minute as we really nail this down. If we take simply the name of God, which in English we've translated it to be Yahweh, but in the Hebrew there's only four letters. Yod, Hey, Vav, Hey, four letters. There are no vowels in the Hebrew language. Our translators have added vowels to the name so that we could try to make sense of it, try to figure out how to pronounce it. So we've gotten different iterations of it. If you've heard the name Jehovah, that's the same name, just with different vowels. So there are many variations in the English to pronounce this name. But in the ancient Hebrew, there are only four letters. Yod, Hey, Vav, Hey. And with removing the vowels, to pronounce this name, you can only use consonants. Consonants that make the sound of aspiration. If you were to pronounce these in the original language, it is simply aspirated sound. Every time you breathe, you breathe in, you breathe out, still with me. Every breath you take, you Proclaim the name of God. If every human being breathes at least 22,000 times a day, times 7.753 billion people in the world, the name of God is uttered 170 trillion, 566 billion times across every socioeconomic and racial line, across governments and nations and borders, whether you recognize God's name or not, believe in God's name or not, every second we live, we are proclaiming the name of the Lord. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. the most holy name. 
And more than simply God being the creator, beloved, Jesus Christ, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 17, is the architect of our lives. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created. He's supreme over all creation. For through him God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is the architect of creation, the hand that carved out humanity from the clay, who bent down to bless us and bring us alive with a kiss. He gave us consciousness and breath. That was Yahweh the Son, the one who shaped the mountains, carved out the valley, spoke all things into existence, the seen and the unseen into reality, is Jesus Christ our Lord. And just as the divine name is holy, it is the name that is to be kept holy. Because of what Christ did on the cross, in Philippians chapter 2, it says, Though he was God and did not think of equality with God as something to cling to, instead he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being when he appeared in human form and humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross, therefore God has elevated him to the place of highest honor and has given him the name above all other names, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Yahweh was the name that could not be uttered the most holy name, but Yahweh himself has given Jesus a name which is above every name. In the original language, his name is Yeshua, which means salvation. He is our salvation. He is not just our creator, but he's also our salvation. And in his second coming, when he returns, the world will finally see him the way his disciples did when he was transfigured on the mountain in visible glory, the visible image of the invisible God, God in flesh, the angel of the presence, the word and the son of almighty God, the one who gives us life and breath. He's the cornerstone of our faith the central figure of everything we believe, our Savior, our Shepherd, our High Priest, and our King. And how has He made such an impact in the world? How has He inspired us to create and to worship and to write songs and to, and to portray Him in so many different facets? Is it just because He revealed God to us? Maybe. But I think a little deeper, it's because he didn't just reveal God. He revealed God's heart to us. 1 John 4, 9, it says, God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world that we might have eternal life through him. He revealed his love through Jesus. And not just in his death alone, but also in how he lived. Jesus lived in a way that was unparalleled to any who came before him. My wife and I were talking this week. We were kneeling down to pray together as we do many mornings. And 
she was just sharing with me the things God was teaching her in the Word of God. And I love, I love how we can encourage each other, and I think I learn more from her than she does from me. So you can give her credit for all the good messages I teach. But she was just sharing me with what God was speaking to her. And what was crazy is I, I was preparing this message, and I knew what we were talking about. I knew the what was he impacted us through the arts. He impacted the, and created the, the arts were impacted and influenced by Christ in many profound ways. But I didn't know how to connect the what to the why. Why, why is he so profound? How did he influence us? Why was he able to influence in such a way? And as she's just sharing what God had laid on her heart, it like dawned on me. It's like, this is it. This is the answer to my prayer. Why has his life been so instrumental in inspiring billions? To create and use creativity to capture his glory in the art. What seemed to be so understood in the heart that words cannot convey, but the heart feels deeply. How was he able to do that in such a profound way? And this is what God revealed to my wife and spoke to her heart and began to speak to me. In John chapter 13 is where she was reading. The hour was getting close to his crucifixion. It was the day of the triumphant entry. It was Palm Sunday. I didn't even think about that until I went back to read the context of what she was sharing with me. So God was setting this up for this message today. It was the day of the triumphant entry. Jesus is being celebrated. He's marching. He's riding the donkey's colt. They're waving the branches, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Welcoming him into the, the city as the king of the Jews. And after all the fanfare, after everything that he goes through, and, and, and the celebration that's happening, Jesus begins to predict his death to his disciples. And in John chapter 12, verse 27, here's what Jesus says. He says, now my soul is deeply troubled. Somebody say deeply troubled. So we just came into town celebrating, but now my soul is deeply troubled. Should I pray, Father, save me from this hour? But this is the very reason why I came. Father, bring glory to your Bring glory to your name. You see, Jesus could have asked God to save him. But more important to him than his own well-being was that the Father's name be glorified. Now, the word troubled here means to cause one inward commotion, to take away the calmness of mind, to disturb the peace within him. He was overwhelmed with grief in this moment, knowing what he was about to to face. Isaiah 53 says he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with the deepest grief. You ever have the reality of impending doom hit you in a single moment? Like when you did something wrong and you knew when your dad got home he was going to find out and you hear the car pull into the driveway and you're like, oh no, my life is over. Or you hear the whip of the belt, you know, come out, come out of this, you know, spot. You know what I'm talking about. It's like everything in you wants to die right there. This hits Jesus in a moment as he's facing his hour of trial. What does he do? 
he gathers his disciples for one final meal. One final Passover before his death. In John 13, verse 1, it says, Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on the earth, and now he loved them to the very end. He knew his time was close. And he was overwhelmed with grief, knowing he would soon die and leave his disciples behind. We see in the garden, when he's praying in the garden of Gethsemane, we know how overwhelmed he was. The scripture says he was so overwhelmed, so broken, so distraught, he began to bleed through his sweat glands. Sweat drops of blood. The scientific research to understand how much duress you need to be under in order to do that is astounding. He was under incredible duress. Think about if you were in his position. What would you be thinking in that state? What would you be feeling? Where would your thoughts be? What would you be focusing on? What would you be praying? I think I'd be praying, Father, would you please take this time of trial for me? Can we do plan B? I, we didn't discuss a plan B. Can we, can we renegotiate for just a minute? I'd be trying to get out of it. Father, take this cup from me, but this is not what he did. Jesus didn't turn inward and think about what he was going through. He turned outward toward God, that his name would be glorified, and then he turned towards his disciples, the ones he loved to the very end. And what does Jesus do in this place of extreme duress? He strips down, gets out a basin of water, and he washes his disciples' feet. He even washes Judas's feet. In John 13, 21, it says, and now Jesus was what? Jesus was deeply troubled. Anytime the Bible repeats itself, it wants you to pay attention to what's happening here. He was deeply troubled when he thought about his own death. And now he was deeply troubled. Why? He exclaims, I tell you the truth, one will betray me. He was deeply stressed, deeply disturbed, because not only did he know what was going to happen to him, but he knew what was going to happen to Judas after Judas was about to do what he was going to do. And Jesus loved Judas and was heartbroken even for him knowing that he was about to betray him in his most desperate hour. The very next chapter, in chapter 14 of the Gospel of John, Jesus could have sought comfort from his disciples. He could have gone off alone to be alone, to process. He could have gone onto Facebook and typed in a please feel sorry for me message that a lot of people do. You just want to get a few likes. I haven't had a few likes in a while, so I need to get a couple of smiley faces, a couple, you know, a couple of relating, you know. He didn't do any of that stuff. He ministered to his disciples. In verse 14, it says, don't let your hearts be troubled. I'm deeply troubled. I'm destroyed in my spirit. But don't let your hearts be troubled. 
Trust in God and trust also in me. There's more than enough room in my father's home. If it were not so, I would have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you. And when everything is ready, I'll come and get you. So you'll always be with me where I am. And you know the way where I'm going. The thoughts of Christ were solely on to comfort his disciples. Knowing what they were going to go through after watching him suffer and die. The guilt that they would have after abandoning him to his demise, the fear that their lives would also be in danger. So he consoles them and reveals that another comforter is coming. The Holy Spirit would be here to encourage them. They wouldn't be left comfortless. Beloved, there has never been nor ever will be a person on this planet so good, so pure, so selfless that in the moment of their most desperate hour they have no thought of themselves but only concern for those that they love. This is a love the world does not know. Our world tries to define love in many different ways. Even to say that all love is, is equal to, what it, to one another. But what Jesus has shown us and why Jesus continues to inspire us today is that he shows us not all love is equal. There is only one love that is really considered to be called love. One type of love can save. One type of love can transform. One type of love can revolutionize nations, unite whole people groups. One type of love can inspire millions of old songs to be played again and again and millions more to be written in the days to come. There's only one type of love that can transform your identity and disbelief about yourself. One love that can break the strongholds of guilt and shame. One love that can reorient the whole of your life. There is only one kind of love that can turn enemies into brothers, bring forgiveness to unforgivable transgressions. There is only one love and his name is Jesus Christ. One love. In John 15, verse 9, Jesus says, I have loved you even as the fathers loved me. Remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love. Just as I love or I obey my father's commandments and remain in his love. And I've told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. You'll be fully satisfied in me. Yes, your joy will overflow. And this is my commandment. Love each other the same way I've loved you. For there is no greater love than this. Then a man would lay his life down for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. For now you're my friends. And since I've told you everything the Father told me, you didn't choose me. I chose you. You're chosen. You're chosen. And I appointed you. You're appointed. I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit so that the Father will give you whatever you ask using my name. Yeshua. Jesus. And this is my command. It's so simple. Love each other. Beloved, this was not a love found in a singular moment on the cross. 
but this was a love he lived every day of his life. Every day, dying to self, laying himself down for the good of his friends. He never missed it. He never faltered. He never checked out of a moment. He was always present, always loving, always gracious and kind. And even when speaking hard truths, he spoke life and not death. He honored others by lowering himself. And on top of all this amazing love, by the power of his great name, he performed miraculous signs and wonders, too many to capture or remember, whether in books or in art. John even says as much in John 21, 25, says Jesus did so many other things. If they were all written down, I suppose the whole world could not contain the books that could be written. We have no idea what love really is. But we see it in the face of Jesus. Our world is inspired by Jesus. We're transformed by this man's death and his resurrection, but yet many still try to reach the end of inspiration by trying to come up with a way to fully capture what Jesus has done, and you can't do it. To no avail. Songs are produced, plays are written, films are produced, sculptures are crafted, canvases are painted in honor of this one man, but yet it never says it all. Jesus is unparalleled in all of human history. And his life and his love continue to reach us in the deepest place in our hearts, moving us to worship, moving us to honor this man as we recognize all of life, our reason for being, our purpose our existence, our next breath is due to him. In him we live. In him we move. In him we find hope. And in him we're made new. And beloved, that's why we create. That's why we sing. Because it moves us in the deepest place of our being. I want to close by reading this writing called The Imparable Christ. And it's fitting as we think about the glorious majesty of Jesus and his name. It says, in infancy he startled a king. In childhood he puzzled doctors. In manhood he ruled the course of nature, walked upon the waves as pavement, and hushed the sea to sleep. He healed the multitudes without medicine and made no charge for his service. He never wrote a book, yet perhaps all the libraries of the world could not hold the books that have been written about him. He never wrote a song, yet he's furnished the theme for more songs than all the songwriters combined. He never founded a college, but all the schools put together could not boast of having as many students. He never marshaled an army, nor drafted a soldier, nor fired a gun, yet no leader ever had more volunteers who have, under his orders, made more rebels stack arms and surrender without a shot fired. He never practiced psychiatry, yet he's healed more broken hearts than all the doctors far and near. Once each week, multitudes congregate at worshiping assemblies to pay homage and respect to him. The names of the past proud statesmen of Greece and Rome have come and gone. The names of the past scientists, philosophers, and theologians have come and gone. 
but the name of this man multiplies more and more. Though time has spread 1,900 years between the people of his, this generation and the mockers at his crucifixion, he still lives. His enemies could not destroy him. The grave could not hold him. He stands forth upon the highest pinnacle of heavenly glory, proclaimed of God, acknowledged by angels, adored by the saints, feared by devils as the risen personal Christ, our Lord and Savior, Jesus, the name above all names. And we praise you, God. We praise you, Jesus. We live, you live forever, forevermore in glory. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Jesus. You are our muse. You inspire us every day to get up, to keep going, to keep trying. God, we are perfectly fulfilled in you. God, teach us to access those deep places in our heart, the places we guard and hide from the world, the places we don't want anyone to see. Because, God, when you touch that place, we are transformed, we come alive, and we're made new. God, I pray that you would release an anointing of worship in this place, in this community. God, that is, that is transformed by the name that's above every name. God, I just thank you for your grace and your mercy. I thank you for the love that you displayed on the cross. But God, I also thank you for the love you displayed every moment of your life. God, as imperfect as we are, we long to give you glory with all that we are. Help us to love one another as you have loved us. That when men look upon our lives, when the people of earth look upon the church, they are inspired to give glory to God our Father because of the light and the love they see on display in your people. We thank you, Lord, for the work that you're doing. We thank you for the ministry that you're releasing through this church. I pray for every heavy heart here that they be lifted. I pray, God, as we go into this time of worship and we just respond to you, Lord, I pray that a shift would happen in the depths of our soul as we proclaim the love of God and that, God, you would transform us today. And may we continue to live and breathe for the honor and glory of Yahweh God, Jesus Christ. church. We want to say thank you for listening. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to www.blchurch.tv forward slash give. Thank you and God bless.